Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and our text this morning will be verses 8 through 10. Last week we, we looked at Noah, the, the life of, of Noah, and as we begin to look at Abraham this morning, who actually occupies the greatest length of this chapter, we see that there's, there's many parallels and the same patterns that were said of Noah can be said of Abraham as, as well. Last week we looked at the three points. What was the ground of faith, which was the word of God, the effect of faith, which was that he was obedient to God, and then the fruit of faith is that he received certain blessings as a result of his faith. And we see the same parallels in the life of Abraham. And in fact, the very same points could be made of the text this morning when we look to him. And something that we ought to note is the very same points that can be made of the life of Noah, that can be made of the life of Abraham, is the very same points that can be made of your life and my life, that is, if you are in Christ. That at some point, Christ calls you out of darkness, and he calls you to walk into his marvelous light. And the result of that is that you walk according to how Christ has called you. The story of Noah, the story of Abraham, is the story of every Christian. And we have to recognize that, that they are called and we are called. That they were called, declared righteous uh, through faith. And if you are in Christ, you are declared righteous through faith. And that if they, as they lived according to faith, in expectation of something greater that was ahead of them, we too, who are called in Christ, live by faith in expectation and a great anticipation of something that is awaiting us. And so this morning, we'll see these three movements in Abraham. They're very simple. He's called out, he's called in, and he's called up. And these are the same three movements that we will find in our lives as well. And so let us hear the word of God beginning in verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is the word of God, and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy, perfect word. You begin by seeing that Abraham is called out. He's called out of the life of darkness and you can see that pictured in the land he was living in was a land that was shrouded in darkness and paganism and wickedness and iniquity. And he's called out of that. And the result of him being called out of that, you'll notice in verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed. And so his obedience is by faith. And we have to recognize that apart from faith, our obedience counts and accomplishes nothing. Paul makes this very point in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, where he says, Gentiles do by nature the law, though they do not have a law. And it counts to, for nothing for them. In other words, to do things in obedience, if, even if they're in obedience to God's word, apart from faith, counts for nothing. Saul, the very first king 
of Israel offered a, a sacrifice to God, thinking that by offering a sacrifice it would accomplish something. And Samuel the prophet chastised him and asked this question, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And so we can be obedient through the flesh, but we have to recognize that the flesh is corrupt and counts for nothing. Or as Paul says, that working in faith is only faith working through love. So obedience is by faith. Obedience isn't something that we do just merely rotely because of we see it here in the Word of God, but it's through faith that we're obedient. And so Abraham has said that he obeyed. And what does that mean, he obeyed? Obeyed is to listen and to understand and then submit oneself to that which they understand. And so to obey is, in this context of the Word of God is to hear the Word of God that provides instruction, to listen to that Word, to have a comprehension of it, and then submit oneself to that, to that which they understand. Now what was Abraham's command was this, is to go out of this land. It was not a command that made a lot of sense. It was not a, it was not a command that he could see the end in it of what he would get for it. But he simply is obedient by faith, trusting God even when it doesn't make the most sense. We're called to obedience in Christ as well. And oftentimes what we're called to in terms of living a life that is separated and set apart for Christ does not make a lot of sense. Because the Christian life is a life where the priorities of the life have changed. They're no longer like that of the world's. And our innate way of thinking because of what we're called out of it, and it never really leaves us until we're glorified, still has a pull on us. Sometimes obedience requires us to do things that don't make any sense to us. But that's what we see is Abraham, by faith, obeyed. And so obedience is by faith. And the ground of this faith is the Word of God. And you see that here, just as in the life of Noah, when he was called. This is when he was called. Now, Genesis chapter 12 begins the life of Abraham. And we see the call on Abraham's life in just this very simple statement in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In other words, Abraham is going about life as normal and then unexpected to him, the word of the Lord comes to him, intrudes into his life, and changes everything about his life. And he responds to the very word of God. The calling of God on his life was effectual. And here's what we have to understand, is that when God calls someone, it is efficient. 
God's call is not only irrevocable, but it is completely effectual. God called Abraham, and it produced results in his life. Now, you might think, how is it that this produced results? results in his life? How is it that he just tells him to go into a new land and he makes these promises to him? We don't know exactly how God revealed himself to Abraham and how he spoke to Abraham, but we have to admit this, is that whatever took place to in Abraham's life was entirely uh, dramatic and supernatural to change the very disposition of his heart. Now we have, I like to think of it like this, is we have the cliff notes of the conversation and what was taking place between God and Abraham. We, we just have the summary of it. We have what is sufficient for us to understand. And, and the reason I say this is because when we look in the New Testament, which interprets the Old Testament for us, and gives us the full interpretation of how we should understand the Old Testament, we see that there was certainly more going on. In Galatians chapter 3, in verse 8, we read this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So whatever Abraham heard from God, he interpreted that as pointing towards the Messiah that would one day rescue him. Abraham heard the gospel, and he responded to the gospel because of the impact of the gospel upon his heart. The calling of God was efficient, the calling of God was effectual, and the calling of God changed and replaced his heart with a heart of faith. And what we have to recognize is that there was nothing about Abraham that stood apart from the rest of humanity whereby God looked at Abraham and said, I need Abraham on my side to accomplish my will. Rather, Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was an idolater. Abraham was a blasphemer of God. Why do I know this? Is because the Bible tells us in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived behind, beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. In other words, Abram grew up going to Sunday school in the school of pagan idolatry. He was taught to not worship the one true living God. He had the, fa- the, the, the religion of his father, which was a, a religion of idolatry. And so there's nothing about Abram that sets him apart as being one that was seeking God because the scriptures tells us no, not one seeks after God. No, not one is righteous. Abraham is not seeking after God, but rather God is seeking after Abram. He doesn't call him based upon anything that he does or any works that he produces, God calls him based purely upon the pleasure of his goodwill. And this effectual calling 
is what changes him. What is effectual calling? The, the London Confession of Faith says it's an enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. So apart from the Spirit working in Abram's life, could he have interpreted what God told him as pointing to the Messiah? No, it was the Spirit of God working in him and revealing this to his heart. By the way, this is how you came to know of the promises that are found in the Messiah. And everyone here was walking in the course of this world. Everyone here was walking in the darkness of their own path, but it is through that same effectual calling of God upon your heart through the preaching of the gospel that changed you. Paul writes of this in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17 where he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. What needs to be enlightened? A darkened mind. This is what God does in the heart of Abram. This is what God has done in your heart if you are in Christ. He has enlightened our darkened minds. Now with Abram, he gives him a bit of motivation in this. He promises him an inheritance that is an unthinkable inheritance. And you'll notice in Genesis... And we're going to be we're going to be in if you if you haven't picked this up on in our Hebrew studies we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament we're going to be in the Genesis account this morning quite a bit. Notice what God says: I will show you, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, and I will curse in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is telling him, I will do these things. It is the action of God it is dependent upon God and that God makes the promise that he himself will do these things of an inheritance. And so what's the action of that in Abram is that it, the text says God called him and he went out. God called him and he went out. Now the backstory is that his heart's changed that he hears the gospel and he responds to it. And the action is he follows God in obedience. And, and what's so commendable about this in, in Abraham is that it says not knowing where he was going. That's the remarkable part about it. Abraham did not possess the information about where he was going. Yet he was obedient to the word of God. The word was sufficient based upon the promises that are given to him. Only a changed heart would go where they don't know where they're going. Only a changed heart would respond to the word of God in such a way, I want you to leave everything and go to some place that you, you have no idea about. 
we, we have to recognize something that's in this pattern of these that are of the faithful and that is true of our lives too, is that true obedience flows from faith. We have to get that down inside. Because that doesn't mean that there's perfect Christians. We don't believe in the doctrine or perfectionism that's sometimes in Wesleyan circles. We, don't, we would reject that as being actually heretical. But we do have to say that Christians live an obedient life. That obedience comes as a result of faith because a heart has been changed, a, a mind has been given, a, a new nature has come out. So the fruit of faith is fruit. You might say that the fruit of saving faith is faithfully living. Now, the faithful living doesn't save us. We're not saved by a living faith. We're saved by faith alone, an empty hand, but it results in faithful living. Faith does not see the end at the beginning, but it simply trusts the Word of God. Abram hears this word of God. It changes his heart. He then goes not where he knows, but he goes where God has called. We hear over and over again the connection between hearing God's word and faith. In fact, this has been a, a major point of the argument of Hebrews in the warning passages. Here it is. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author of Hebrews reports, re repeats that twice. Today, if you hear the word of God, don't harden your heart to it. That's the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, we see, For good news came to us just as to them. There's a response to faith that is, or a response to the word of God. It is faith. And Abram is called to forsake all. The text tells us that he left his country. He left his kindred. He left his father's religion. He left his father's house. He left all he knew. You think about this, how often just a slight change in things really bugs us. He's asked to change everything. To leave his homeland. It's only 20 miles away, but leaving the homeland of Escalon was not easy. I can't imagine having to leave the homeland of another country. But yet that's what he's called to do. To leave his family. And to leave everything that he knew and practiced. Well, let me read you something that Jesus says. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, is anyone going to respond to that word of God? This is what Jesus says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, we're actually, we're called to leave all things as well. 
we're called to a life that is different, just as Abraham. You may not be called to go and leave your country. You may not be called to leave your father's religion. You may be called to join it. But it is a forsaking of yourself that happens as a result of this. And so as he's called out, he's called out to a place to receive an inheritance. He goes out based upon this promise. And we see then, as he goes out, he then goes in. He goes into a life. He comes out of the life he once knew, and he comes into a new life. In verse 9, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same providence. So you see twice now in the text we have seen obedience comes by faith. By faith he went. It's the second time that his faith is emphasized with his action that he does this. And he enters into the land of promise, in this land of promise that God would give him. And we see that. And I want to read the text in, in Genesis chapter 12, in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He makes this promise to him, and the result of it is Abram went. He goes into the land as the Lord had told him, and Lot was with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land, the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moah at the time of the Canaanites were in the land. He doesn't come to an open land that welcomes him in. But he sees a land that's inhabited by people. And you have to think, wait, God, you said I'm going to get this land, but then there's people living there. God then appears to him again in verse 7, chapter 12 of Genesis. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west of Ai and on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. We see a man that is called into this land, but now he's called into worshiping the one true God. And that now, because God has called upon him, he calls upon God. Why is it that you called upon the Lord one day? Because God called upon you first. That's the way it works. And what's amazing about this text is he's promised this inheritance, he's promised this land, but it tells us in Hebrews that it is as in a foreign land. Now what does that mean to say that it's as in a foreign land? Well, if you were to visit another country that is not your birthplace, that is not where you are named a citizen, you would be in a foreign land. You have no claim to that land. He lives in the land as a foreigner, yet he was promised that the land would be his. That's a remarkable statement. 
He left all for the Word of God. You might say blindly, but it wasn't blindly because he had God's Word guiding him. And he, he never owns the land himself. He only buys a small plot of land for the burial of his wife, Sarah. You see that in, in Genesis 23, verse 4. And let me read it to you. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Notice what he says, Abram says, to the Hittites that had the land. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. But yet he left his own land coming into this land to possess it as his own promise that he would be an inheritor of this land. When his wife dies, who never gets to see it, he has to buy a plot of land, which he gets ripped off in buying it. And he says, I'm a foreigner. I'm a sojourner. Let's imagine this for a second. Try to put ourselves in, in, in the best we can in, in Abraham's shoes. Just to imagine that, that God takes you to the highest peak in California, roughly a comparable plot of land. And he takes you to the highest plot, and he goes, you look over to the east, and you look to the west, north, and south, and as far as you can see, this is yours. But you're on that mountain, and you see people that are not your people living there. You see society functioning as society's functioning. That would be unthinkable to think this will be my land. But this is what happens. We read in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you. I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, his tent, and came and settled by the oaks of the Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. That whole scenario of you going to a high peak and saying, this will be all yours, though yet you see people living there as if it was theirs, it would be impossible to think that this could be mine. But that's what God does for Abraham. He's not a possessor of the land, but rather he lives as an exile. He lives as a stranger as opposed to having citizenship. He lives as a visitor. It says that in Hebrews, that, and we just read this, that he, he's living in tents with Isaac and, and Jacob. Now what's remarkable about this is if you were promised a land, you think you would build something in that land to signify the permanence that you have in that land. But he doesn't. You might think, well, maybe it's because he couldn't afford to do that. Well, this is what we read of Abram in chapter 13 of Genesis, verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. 
the wealth of Abraham is, is incredible because if you think about it, not only does the scripture tell us that he was very rich in these things, but Abraham had an army. If you remember where he goes and rescues his nephew Lot, he takes an army in there with him. How many people can afford their own army? You think of wealthy people that have bodyguards with them, and they might, they might at most have a few bodyguards surrounding them that are on their payroll. He has an army within his household that's able to go and defeat kings. He has incredible wealth, but yet what do we see? Despite his wealth, he lives in a tent. And what is a tent? A tent is something that's portable. You can pick it up and move it with you, and you have the convenience, if you're nomadic, to move it around wherever you would like to go. It, doesn't, it offers only minimal protection, and there's really not much permanence in the idea of a tent. And because he did live a nomadic life, and his children would live a nomadic life, they live in tents despite the ability that he could afford a home with foundations. Faith does something to a person. Faith changes a person, but in this we see that faith changes a person's priorities, it changes a person's mindset about how they view life. His life is radically changed through this, where his mindset is changed completely, because as we have seen, he could afford to stay in his own place and build and accumulate and accumulate, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. In fact, we see that the promise comes through his children who were heirs with him of the same promise. In Stephen's speech of Abram in, in Acts chapter 7, we see this. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. It's an incredible statement. He only begins to see it unfold. And so for Abram to be a sojourner, to be a foreigner, or to live as a foreigner in a tent, it, it seems to be contrary to what God had promised. God promised me this land, but then he doesn't own any of it. He wanders through it, living in a tent. It's not being settled. There's something else that's happening, though, in Abraham's life, and that is God is working in him. God is changing him. And Calvin says this, God delayed the time. For the longer the delay, the greater was the trial. But by the setting up the shield of faith, they repelled all the assaults of doubt and unbelief. In other words, God was working through him, through faith. Certainly, Abram had moments of doubt. You see that in the exchanges where he would say of his wife, who was noted for her beauty, no, that's not my wife, that's my sister. Where was the man of faith in that moment? 
He was a man like the rest of us, sinful. He was sinful. But we see that nonetheless, faith changes even a sinful man to where they will go into the life that God calls them to. And we finally see he's, he's called up. And what do I mean by that he's called up? Well, I wanted to try to keep continuity in these points. But he's called up in the sense that he's looking forward to the city that's foundation is not built by man. In verse 10 of Hebrews 11, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So why does Abraham continue trusting in God despite the fact that he does not or has not yet received the promise? The reason is given at the beginning of verse 10. For. This is why. For. That's because he was looking forward to something else. He understood as we started this off that the promises of God, the gospel that was preached to him, everything was representing something greater to come. You think of what Jesus said, that Abraham saw, my, saw me. So he was looking forward to the city that's foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward. So he lived his life for a greater reality. He looked forward despite the circumstances of the moment. Despite the, the fact that when he comes into this foreign land, it's not what he might have expected. He recognized it was all typological of something greater to come. And so he looks forward. What does it mean to look forward? It means to remain in a state until that an expected event takes place. And he does that by faith. Have you ever waited on someone and, they, and, and they're, they're taking so long that you get frustrated and just go on without them? Have you ever waited on something and you're waiting, you're waiting and waiting, it doesn't come and you get frustrated and you just go ahead and move on? Abram goes into this land and is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. How did he endure? He was looking forward to something that was greater. How's it that we endure through the trials of this life? How is it that we deal with the aches and pains of life? Well, we know that there's something greater ahead. And, and in the moment, how do we deal with that? We know that God has called us to a greater promise than what we have right now. We know that the, the, the way things are right now is just but a flash in the pan. And if you're, if you're in Christ, you have a hope of something that's greater awaiting you. The world lives for the moment. The world cannot comprehend why they're going through things. They don't have an answer for why there's struggles 
in this life. The world doesn't understand how dangerously close they are to following into an abyss of eternal hell. But if you're in Christ, you have something that draws you forward. The city description is foundations are built by God. That's in contrast to a tent. Why would, why would Abram build a, something with lasting foundations here when he knows that God's going to give lasting foundations? That's why he lives in a tent. He's awaiting a, a heavenly city. He knows that what he'll receive is far greater than the tent he lives in because God's the designer of it. It means it's perfect. What's awaiting the believer is perfectly designed for the believer by the perfect designer. And that God himself is building it, which means it's guaranteed. What God is building is not susceptible to tornadoes, to earthquakes, and the destruction of time. Because God himself is the builder of it. This is our hope as well. God tells us this, for here we have no lasting city. Notice, notice what God says. Here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. What is our mindset in regards to this? Because it seems like the world wants to build earthly kingdoms. And sometimes that, that, that pours into the world of Christianity as well. There's only one lasting kingdom. And what we see here is this simple truth. Here we have no lasting city. So why would our priorities be in building up dirt when there's something that God has that is far greater. And I started off by saying there was parallels to Noah's life. There's parallels that you see through all of these men, whether it's Abel or it's Enoch or when we get into Moses later. There's these parallels in their lives, but there's a parallel to our own life, and we need to see our connection to Abraham. And I want us to see this so that we too can live for the city that is to be built by God, is built by God. That we become his children by faith and receive the same promises by faith. This is what the Hebrews needed to know because they were facing difficult times. And so God reminds them of this fact of their father Abraham. We begin much like Abraham did too. Paul says this of himself in 1 Timothy 1.13. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. That is a description of every Christian before coming to Christ is a blasphemer, worshiping the idolatry of their own heart. But that in Christ we are called through the word of God and given great promises. We see in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 through 4, 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." Notice what this says, is that through knowledge of him, which comes by the preaching of the word of God, you have escaped the desires and the blasphemy and the corruptions of this world and of this flesh, and you are called to him and given great promises. In other words, Abram was given great promises. If you're in Christ, you have been given great promises as well. And we're told this is that there's something greater awaiting us that is that is yet to come. We're told in Ephesians chapter one that, that there's this glorious inheritance in Colossians chapter three. Verse 24, we're, said, we're told this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. We're told just like Abraham, there's this inheritance that you is yours right now. It's your inheritance. Here's this promise from the very word of God. But then you wake up next tomorrow morning and you go into the same day that you went into today, dealing with this life. But yet what does the scripture say? You have this inheritance, this reward, these promises that are yours right now, though you can't see them. You have that same. We're told this is that we will live as sojourners in this world in a way much like Abraham did. We're told by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice what that says about our citizenship. It's otherworldly. And it's built upon a sure foundation. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. They're, 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 the citizenship that is in heaven, it is of every nation and every tongue and of every tribe. It is promised to us. In 1 Peter, you see so many times the, the troubles that you will face in this world. And Peter says this, I just took note of how he identifies Christians. He calls them elect exiles. Elect notes that something chosen, it notes something special. Exile means that you, you're, you're in a place where you're not supposed to be. And so we see that we're chosen, we're precious, but yet we're exiles. Peter says twice that we're sojourners. He says that we are going to an inheritance that is imperishable. Peter says that we're rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But here, right now, we're called sojourners. We're called exiles living in a foreign 
land. Just like what Abram had to face is the same thing that you and I have to face. And so what is promised to us? What is it that we need to keep our eyes on? Let me just give you a few verses. Jesus says these familiar words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Think about what, what we read in Hebrews where God tells us that there's this builder and designer. He is the builder and designer. What do we see Christ saying? I'll prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That way where I am, you may also be. Eternity in this will be with Christ. You know, we oftentimes think of being reunited with our loved ones because that's what we know and that's going to be glorious. But the most glorious aspect is that we'll be with Jesus. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I looked, and behold, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's our promise. That's what gets us through the aches and pains and the sufferings and the trials and the adversities of this life as Christians, is that there's coming a day where there will be no crying. By the way, it's not that we'll be crying and he wipes away our tears. That's just simply saying that we will now be in such a state that there's no more crying. That's what's promised to us. And those are promises are, are, are enough, just as they were enough in Abram's life, to encourage us through our pilgrimage. We are called out of darkness. We are called into this new way of life. We are called to go into all nations proclaiming the good news as we look forward to being called up to that glorious celestial city whose designer and builder is God. Is that your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Is that what gets you through? Is knowing that you have something greater awaiting you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that are found in Christ and in Christ alone. We thank you how encouraged we are by knowing that there is something greater awaiting us. We pray that you would encourage us, Father, by your grace, strengthen our faith. And we pray that the adversity and the struggles we face here would only be a means of, of transforming us in our lives. We need your help with that to see this with the eyes of faith, much like your servant Abram. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.